Welcome back to the Gillette Health Podcast, where we give you tools to develop a balanced approach for health. I'm Dr. Kyle Gillette. And I'm James O'Hara, nurse practitioner. Today we have a highly requested topic. We're going to be chatting all about the endocrine system and specifically endocrine disruptors. So mm -hmm. this is a, this is actually a fun one to prep for, and we have some fun studies we'll throw in there along with the more serious ones. Um, I guess I'll preface it by saying I've never been more reassured and also alarmed at the same time. That's a good synopsis. Uh, endocrine disruptors uh, and in general can mean a lot of various things. A lot of people use the term endocrine disruptor to mean uh, something that we wouldn't consider it to be. But our primary considerations is molecules that you encounter um, in nature of various types that are both agonist or antagonist. So they activate or inactivate any sex hormone receptor. So that would be androgens like testosterone, estrogens like estradiol receptors, and uh, progesterone receptors, uh, progestogens. Yeah, so sometimes these are called xenoestrogens, xenoandrogens, xenoprogestins. Mm -hmm. We also have uh, food products and plant things mm -hmm. like phytoandrogens, phytoestrogens, phytoprogesterones. And then we have phthalates. Mm -hmm. So phthalates have uh, sort of become a hot topic. I believe it was uh, a Dr. Swan, who's a professor somewhere, mm -hmm. uh, wrote a book and published a very highly cited and viewed paper, I believe a New England Journal of Medicine, mm -hmm. uh, one of the apex journals anyway, yeah. looking at how these things are affecting uh, embryological development and infants and that sort of thing. So they've sort of come into the spotlight and, you know, the industry is always going to be a step ahead of regulations. So, you know, these things are out there, they're everywhere. Um, so where might people be exposed to phthalates in their day-to-day -day environment or phytoestrogens or xenoestrogens for that matter? Almost everywhere. Could be your food, could be a box of, I think macaroni and cheese was one of the um, things that was mentioned of certain brands that had high phthalate content. I believe I discussed that on the Huberman podcast when we talked about that. We also talked about microplastics and bisphenol A, but uh, it's also in cosmetic products. Um, lately, there was a, um, rightfully, a push to um, not use clothing that would have forever chemicals on it, especially if it is in contact with your genitals. And I think that is very reasonable as well. The older that I get, the more of a natural approach I tend to take things, especially when it comes to um, conception planning, uh, both for males and for females, for males at least 90 days before conception, since sperm take about 60 days to make. And then for females, certainly before and during pregnancy, not just for exposure, but for epigenetic change. And then in early childhood, those would be the times when it's most important to be as natural as possible. Yeah, because those are the times you're going to be the most sensitive. And you see this with some medications, for example, that have teratogenic effects. They're affecting, obviously, how the embryo, the baby develops. And then in adults, they don't seem to have adverse effects, mm -hmm. uh, or at least not to the same magnitude. So you take something like a, a retinoid, Right. Yes. People can use these either in the form of like Accutane, an appropriate dose, or a topical retinoid. But in pregnancy, you definitely want to avoid those because there's very different and much worse potential effects on a developing embryo. Mm -hmm. 
So they're everywhere. They're all around us. Uh, I tried to figure out who invented phthalates. Um, it, it's not exactly clear, but one of the earliest references to the use of plasticizer I could find was this gentleman, uh, Eugene Baumann. Uh, I believe he was German, uh, invented or is credited with inventing one of the first PVC uh, compounds in mm-hmm. 1872. So it's not quite as modern of a phenomenon as I would have initially thought going into this. Yeah. What a wonderful yet over and misused invention that has been. Uh, PVC polyvinyl chloride, one of the first um, uh, plastics, I suppose, that goes from monomer. It can polymerize very easily. You may have seen, if you have young kids like I do, um, factory videos of manufacturing. They take the little PVC beads and they can make it into various things. They put um, hopefully dye in it that uh, is okay touching your skin, depending on what it is. If it's a, a glass to drink from and hopefully make it uh, BPA free or bisphenol A free. But yeah, regardless of who invented um, plastics and phthalates down the line from PVC, um, I'm sure that they did, whoever they is. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And here are some, uh, this is a fun headline. So this one came out, it looks like uh, 2022. So this is pretty recent. And I remember seeing this and it was cited all over you know, CNN, Fox News, everyone was saying this that we consume up to a credit card's worth of plastic every week. Yeah. Credit card weighs about five grams, maybe heavier if you have a metal credit card, if you're fancy like that. Uh, but for purposes of this, I said, hey, people are getting about five grams of microplastic a week. This sounds very alarming. And one common theme you'll see in the you know data that's out there is there's these very broad ranges of estimated intake or content from you know, water to food products. So it's really hard to get an estimate. So the other, the outlier here, uh, a sort of fact check, if you will, that was published said, actually, uh, we might get five grams of microplastics every 23,000 years. So that is quite a range. Uh, One credit card a week or one credit card every 23,000 years. It's almost like you can design certain types of studies to say whatever you want to say. Almost. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why it's important to be able to read the full text of the study and understand the limitations, whether or not those limitations are listed in the study. Yeah, so one of those is DEHP, and you would have to have some pretty high doses of that to actually cause someone to be infertile, uh, a male to be infertile anyway. So the like mouse human equivalent uh, was something like four grams daily for a 60 kilogram male of pure DEHP. And this was a, I believe, lavage or it was put in their food that they were eating. So, you know, 500 milligrams per kilogram in a mouse, you know, impaired spermatogenesis. But that was corrected with lycopene. So mm-hmm. lycopene seems to serve as a, you know, testicular antioxidant. Uh, antioxidant in general, I would say, in the standard American diet, mm-hmm. uh, I think everyone agrees on this at this point. It's not great, and there's not a lot of flavonoids or antioxidant support. So perhaps anything that is in the environment is going to people are going to be more susceptible to that mm-hmm. because they don't have a layer of defense to prevent any negative consequences of that. Yeah, that's a good summary. Uh, there's obviously other antioxidants or um, <clears throat> reactive oxygen species, 
um, recycling compounds. Sheet legit is potentially one. Taurine can be good for testicular health as well, but those do not have evidence to correct or reverse the impaired spermatogenesis. Um, so I guess the question is, well, doc, um, you know, I'm worried about heavy metal exposure. I need a blood test for that, right? I'm worried about phthalate exposure. I need a blood test for that as well. So what blood test do I order? All of them, just like for thyroid, every one that starts with a T. Uh, but in actuality, this has been looked at, you know, how would we potentially, you know, if these things are an issue, mm -hmm. look at monitoring them or looking at population exposure and the more recent studies have looked at urinary levels as a more accurate marker because um, forever chemicals doesn't quite describe the phthalate class. A lot of these are actually pretty rapidly metabolized and excreted in the urine. So mm -hmm. you may miss them or misestimate the levels if you're looking at them in the blood. Um, and one problem with the urinary testing is you may have genetic differences in how you metabolize these things, how much you're excreting versus retaining. Mm -hmm. But if you're looking at the population averages and larger sample sizes, it's going to give you a good idea of what's going on there. So, you know, another claim that was put out there was that phthalates accounted for uh, about 11,000 deaths was the number they threw out. Each they, year. Yeah, annually yeah. among U.S. men due to the phthalates causing low testosterone. And you can find a piece of data that shows an association to, you know, substantiate that if you're wanting to go to IamRight.com and build your case. <laughs> and there was association with um, inverse association between your total testosterone and then how much of uh, benzophenone 3, uh, which is a plasticizer, that is found in the urine. So the more of that that was in the urine, the lower the total testosterone levels. So you can see there's an association there. I mean, if you're trying to optimize your testosterone, I wouldn't recommend just intentionally ingesting pieces of plastic. Uh, mm -hmm. But how big of an effect this is at the population level, it's there and it's kind of in the back of my mind once in a while when you see a case where it's like, well, there's no real underlying causes we can point to, but I really don't think it's the tipping point and the root cause of why our testosterone levels have been dropping as a population. Yeah, I think it's also interesting that they say the reason why these deaths are attributed to phthalate exposure is because, not directly, but because the phthalate exposure causes low testosterone. But um, we're generally not worried about low testosterone causing death. So what's the mechanism of that? Because hypogonadism is not a, um, a terminal condition. <laughs> uh, some people would have you believe that even normal levels of testosterone are life-threatening if they're not in the top 10% of the range. Clinics have you know, various targets I've, out there. I've gotten flack for saying a total testosterone of 550 with a free T of 25 can be optimal. You're trying and to I, kill people. I stand by that <laughs> statement. Total testosterone of 550, free testosterone. Again, calculate an accurate one with SHBG, 25 nanograms per deciliter. That is an optimal testosterone for most individuals with normal androgen density and sensitivity. Uh, write in the comments, please, to help the algorithm if you disagree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So another interesting study looking at this testosterone connection found that it didn't seem, I think this looked at individuals all the way from age 20 to like very, very old adults. So like 75 plus. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they found a significant association, but then they did a subgroup analysis and 
We know the more ways you split up the data, the more likely you are to find something just by chance, but they found mm -hmm. that the men who seemed to be the most susceptible to this were men ages 40 to 60. Uh, looking at the association of these DEHP metabolites in the urine, um, and then their you know, likelihood that that's affecting their testosterone. So there was a, an association there for that age group, but not in others. So clearly this isn't reproducible across all plasticizers and plasticizer metabolites. Mm -hmm. And there's the good old headline from a CNN Health yeah, organization. It looks like a lot of water bottles there. So I have some stats here. Mm. Um, let's do a thought experiment and think about, you know, you hear people talk about, oh, phthalates, you don't want to, you know, get bottled water because the plastic is going to leach into the bottled water. Um, so I looked at some of the numbers, you know, I pulled a, a study and a couple of studies and pulled the highest concentration I could find of DEHP in bottled water. So mm -hmm. uh, you go into the store and you say, hi, I'd like to buy your highest DEHP bottled water, please. Um, I'm trying to lower my testosterone levels. And they say, okay, <laughs> here's your water. And you go home and you think, okay, now how much of this am I going to have to drink to get to something that is clinically significant in rats? Obviously, we don't just give people DEHP at high levels and see what happens. So somewhere between 300 to, I'm sorry, this is in micrograms, different units, somewhere between six and 7,000 liters of bottled water is the human dose equivalent of bottled water to get that DEHP content that would be you know, somewhat having an effect on LH production and testosterone levels. So in the mice studies, you see at that same dose equivalent exposure, they have a reduction in testosterone production, but an increase in LH. So perhaps some testicular toxicity there where they're mm -hmm. not creating testosterone as efficiently. So that's a lot of water, 6,500 liters. Just think of how dangerous that would be because of the phthalates. Yeah, um, I guess one could say, well, had all those bottles of water been left out in the heat for a month and then drank? So I suppose you could say, uh, don't leave your water bottle out in the heat and um, <laughs> like agitate it, leave it on a an agitator and a chemical lab and then microwave it because it was in your car and now it's winter and it's cold and it's cold frozen. water hurts your teeth um so you have to microwave it mm -hmm. and you get even more plastic in the water mm -hmm. you just make a list of things not to do top five tips to not mm -hmm. expose yourself to more phthalates yeah don't, don't agitate your bottled water don't microwave your bottled water don't add any solvents any lipophilic solvents don't leave your water bottle in a hot car Oh, we're doing we need a one more. List. One more. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. There's, it's pretty much common sense what not to do with your bottles of water. Yeah. And I think if you're, if the scenario is you are, let's say you're taking a long flight, is it more harmful to be dehydrated the entire day because you're not going to drink a bottle of water regardless of where you're mm -hmm. at, or is it better to make sure you're adequately hydrated and take in a you know, microdose of phthalates. Mm -hmm. The other thing about bottled water is it is devoid of a lot of things that you might get if you drink water that is not bottled, especially in certain locations. For example, E. coli. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that is a, yeah, 
depending on where you're at, you know, Mexico is yep. what comes to mind when you're talking about. The I would drink some bottled water there. Yeah. Yep. So what's going to be the greater harm? That's kind of the framework to look through things. Now let's look at some oil samples because the data seem to suggest that very aqueous solutions, um, high water content foods mm. or water, are not as prone to the chemicals leaching in, but high fat content, so things like butters or oils or full fat dairy products or high fat beef, those things do seem to leach in more phthalates and you know plasticizers, endocrine disruptors from their plastic packaging or plastic that's used in the manufacturing process. So we pulled a study here that looked at, I believe it was 20 something different oil samples. Mm -hmm. And they said, which one has the highest plasticizer content? And they divided these into subgroups, DEHP and some others. Um, but what was really striking here was just how much plasticizer was seen in olive oil compared to <clears throat> canola oil, for example. Yeah, canola, canola oil is low. Looks pretty good on this chart, actually. So mm -hmm. people are talking about the, the seed oils and you see these studies with the protective effects of olive oil. Um, I think this one bar, we'll put the, the graph up, is an outlier. You know, this isn't consistent. If you average these out, it would still be significantly higher though. Yeah. So is it the plasticizers and the olive oil that is showing these health benefits in the studies when people <laughs> replace saturated fat with olive oil or see olive oil decrease inflammation? Probably not. Uh, and many of you have probably seen our All About Fats podcast. We discuss um, what makes a good olive oil, um, a good oil in general, if you can afford it. Maybe it is reasonable to get a glass bottle for that. Um, maybe even more so for olive oil, but in general, when you smell it, the more pungent the olive oil, uh, this actually has a slightly higher smoke point, but that's in general uh, a better oil. Yes, for different oils, you can, uh, even with the same type of oil, you can see different ratios of omega-3 to omega-6 fatty acids. And as Rhonda Patrick has pointed out many times before, it's the ratio. It's not completely eliminating an essential fatty acid as both omega-3s and omega-6s are essential. Omega-6s just happen to be ubiquitous in the average American diet. Yeah, so this was really interesting. And again, same dose calculations. In this case, I didn't use DEHP specifically. I just used the total plasticizer content, some of which are probably less harmful than DEHP, mm -hmm. less research. But if you're looking at that amount of DEHP equivalent of plasticizer, uh, it would actually only be about two ounces of this olive oil. So wow. that's interesting. Two ounces of olive oil gives you just as much endocrine disruption as 5,000 bottles of water. 5,000 liters. It's 6,500 liters. So if you have 6,000 liters of again, water. Pick, cherry picking the very worst oil, this one that is a major outlier. Um, and that's about 500 calories. I, I don't think the average person gets that many calories from olive oil. Um, but if you compare that to, you just picked a random canola oil, because they're all about the same, mm -hmm. compare that to canola oil, you would have to drink or apply to your food 27 ounces of canola oil, which mm -hmm. works out to 6,750 calories from canola oil. Um, some influencers might have you believe that this is what the average person is consuming, but it is not. Not if you buy my freaking cookbook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, 
So we chatted about some of those dose conversions there, looking at like how much or how little people need. So now what about these phytoestrogens? So these are not things that are a product of a factory, of nope. the evil capitalism. They're not a xenoestrogen, they're natural. And as uh, functional medicine providers, have we come out as functional medicine providers yet? No, but I think we are about to come out as taking dutasteride. True. That, uh, yeah, that's a teaser. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler but alert. Anyways, uh, these are not xenoestrogens that are made at a factory. These are phytoestrogens, which are natural. So all of anything that is natural or a supplement or not synthetic um, is healthy. So no worries about these and we can move on. Really nothing to be said about this. Some of your favorite phytoestrogens might be soy, the soy isoflavones. Uh, genistein seems to have a lot of research mm -hmm. on it. Uh, you know, or your favorite sleep supplement might be a phytoestrogen. Apigenin. Ooh, uh, apigenin is an endocrine disruptor? That's very inconvenient. It seems to disrupt a lot of endocrines. But uh, before we go on to that, how about a case study? Soy causing gynecomastia. So nope. I hear this all the time from the plant-based community that it doesn't matter. You could get all of your protein from soy. You can eat as much soy as you want, and it's not going to have any effect. It doesn't mm -hmm. act like estrogen. It's too weak. Well, here we have a 60-year-old man uh, drinking three quarts of soy milk every day. So this individual presented to an endocrinology clinic. Presumably, he saw his primary care provider, and they didn't think to ask him, Hey, are you drinking three quarts of soy milk per day? Standard bulking <laughs> protocol would be go mad. Three quarts is not quite a gallon. Correct. So, you know, why would you yep. ask that? Go sad. Gallon of soy milk a day. <laughs> um, uh, he was putting on uh, mass, so better than a lot of Gen Z Sarm Goblin bodybuilders. Um, but anyway, uh, he reported erectile dysfunction and decreased libido. But I thought med school taught me more than 90% of the time that's just in your head and you just have a low T mindset. Sounds like you needed a referral to a psychiatrist, not an endocrinologist. Yes. Um, anyways, it uh, <laughs> turned out that this is very organic in his case. On further review systems, no change in testicular size, trauma, STDs, headaches, et cetera, et cetera. No change in muscle mass or strength, but uh, estrone and estradiol concentrations four times above the upper limit. Makes me wonder if this is mm. a Rochiclea assay or LCMS assay. But in any case, yep. that would put you at, what would that be? Something like 140 picograms? Picograms per mil? If you're going by the LCMS. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's, that's, that's basically high. a female level, uh, premenopausal female level of estradiol. 100 yep. to 150 is your average there. Um, subsequent findings from testicular ultrasonography, CT chest, abdomen, and pelvis. PET, positron emission tomography, were all normal. Wow, that's a, that's a pretty big workup. They didn't mention uh, gynecomastia yet. Um, because of the normal findings, uh, he, his chief complaint is gynecomastia. Mm -hmm. So that makes more sense. And I don't see if they, uh, bilateral gynecomastia. So indeed, bilateral gynecomastia. Anyways, um, the patient was interviewed again. So they thought, well, maybe we should ask this patient questions. We want to bill him a 99214 for a five-minute visit every time we see him. So we can only do five minutes of subjective history. 
Um, outside of that, it's just going by the algorithm. Because Running they, them through the assessment machine with the radiation. Yeah, they don't have one hour long individualized medicine assessments. So it turns out he describes a daily intake of three quarts of soy milk. He discontinued the soy milk, his breast tenderness resolved, and his estradiol concentrations returned to normal. Um, he was fine. Maybe he should have seen a dietitian. I'm glad he didn't see a plant-based endocrinologist who would have, even with that history, increased written soy, off, written off, oh, it couldn't possibly be the soy doing that. Yeah. Uh, but that actually calculates out with um, this chart just below that shows, yeah, about 98 ounces, three quarts is 96 ounces, I believe, is equivalent to about 300 to 350 milligrams of genistein, which mm -hmm. can act as an estrogen in some tissues, can block estrogen in some tissue, and can upregulate aromatase. Mm -hmm. So I suspect that aromatase was upregulated in his case, and then that excess of estradiol was suppressing his testosterone production, hence the side effects of gynecomastia, decreased libido, erectile dysfunction. Yep. Um, the layman's quick and dirty gynecomastia formula, again, this is not scientific, but just to help you visualize it is total estrogens plus total growth factors, IGF-1, et cetera, plus prolactin, add those together, and then divide by total androgen pool, which we've discussed many times. That equals gynecomastia or um, either growth or reduction in breast tissue. Yeah, sort of this tug of war that happens in the mammary tissue. Um, so now look at some other foods here. Uh, soybeans, boiled soybeans. This isn't something that I, mm. I've consumed. I don't know how prevalent this is in the American diet. I don't think it's part of the standard American diet. Um, but make sure you aren't making this one mistake that lowers your testosterone. <laughs> if you were eating two and a, well, about two and a half pounds of boiled soybeans per day, that could have a clinically significant effect on your testosterone levels. Mm -hmm. So this is very unlikely to happen in an adult, as we will talk about later. This, um, this pharmacologic effect, as any pharmacologic effect, is affected by individualized pharmacokinetics, which change over age, whether you're an infant or an older adult or middle age, and also changes depending on your body weight. Yeah, so let us know in the comments if you've been eating two and a half pounds of soybeans per day with no ill effects. Um, not surprisingly, it also increased LH. So again, um, action on testicular tissue is expected. And again, this is all extrapolated from, you know, a mouse study. So what is the likelihood of this happening? I mean, the dose equivalent did correspond pretty well in that case mm -hmm. report. I estimated 98 ounces. He was drinking three quarts. Yep. So it seemed to check out. Um, but what if genistein is also a SARM? Maybe mm. that's why he didn't lose muscle mass. It's a SARM and a SARM. Um, it's another one of those compounds that we, um, we can theorize a lot. And there's good preclinical study, which translates usually to mouse data or animal data. Um, and I don't think we know which tissues that it is an agonist or an antagonist of an estrogen receptor, but we did find one study. Yeah, and there's more layers to it than that. So depending on the <laughs> circulating endogenous testosterone level, again, in mice, 
Uh, it may act as a down-regulating factor, or it may actually upregulate and drive androgen signaling. So if you have a male mouse who has his own natural testosterone production, or perhaps he's on TRT, mm-hmm. and he takes in a significant amount of genistein, then that will actually downregulate androgen receptor signaling in the prostate. However, if you have a castrated mouse and you add in genistein at the same amount, that seems to drive androgen receptor yep. signaling in the prostate. So it seems like it may have a slightly higher binding affinity than testosterone, but a slightly milder androgenic effect. Mm-hmm. The effect is a little weaker, but still significant in the testes and no huge effect in skeletal muscle or the lungs, at least in, in mice. Again, this could be different in humans. Yeah, and we don't have a full map of this. I don't even think we have a full map of some of the SERMs and SARMs that are out there in clinical trials or yep. that have been in medicine now. We know based on some evidence that, hey, this probably acts as an estrogen in the liver, something yep. like clomiphene, for example. Yep. But we are far from having a full body <laughs> tissue map of where this is acting like estrogen or not acting like estrogen. Usually we know liver, breast tissue, endometrial tissue, prostate tissue, bone in some cases, bone and or skeletal muscle, or we can at least infer from people that have been on them (laughs) with skeletal muscle. Um, But there are studies on uh, people who have taken SARMs on skeletal muscle and they biopsy that. We've talked about that before, a down regulation in androgen receptor signaling. So as the scientific community studies this more, uh, it will only help our knowledge. Yeah, so if you are considering TRT, probably don't go on GRT or genistein replacement therapy with soy milk. Probably best to stick to the bioidenticals produced by your body, not produced by soy. Certainly. Um, There's a few other compounds that we've theorized about their SARM and or SERM activity. One of them would be Sistanchi. Is it just an androgen receptor antagonist? Or uh, it seems to certainly be an antagonist in the pituitary, at least. I call it diet flutamide. Yeah, it could be diet flutamide, or it could be the best SARM that we don't know is out there. <laughs> um, but only we only know that if we study it more. Yeah, and then we have some more charts here looking at the effect of genistine on estrogen receptor alpha, estrogen receptor beta. And at some of these receptors, it seems to have an affinity that is just as potent as estrogen, Mm -hmm. estradiol itself, the most potent of the estrogens. Um, But you don't get the same level of transcription and you don't get the same level of cell growth in Mm -hmm. these, I believe it's MCF7, a breast cancer cell line. Uh, And this would be a great chart to have for, you know, every single hormone out there for every single target tissue. Because then you could pretty accurately say, hey, this is going to do this in tissue, even though it binds more potently, it's going to block growth, or even even though it induces more growth, Mm -hmm. it doesn't bind enough. You'd have to have a ridiculously high quantity of it to have a clinical effect. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, that data is just not out there. If you've seen an XY plot where you're looking at pharmacodynamic data, um, an agonist or antagonist binding a receptor, Genistein would be somewhere between a neutral antagonist and a pure agonist. A pure agonist, it would be up high on the y-axis, and then a neutral antagonist would be kind of right in the middle, just binding that site. 
as a ligand, but blocking everything else that goes through it. And then an inverse agonist would have, it would be down lower on the y-axis. Interestingly, genistein has several active metabolites with very similar pharmacodynamic profiles. So it's another good example, just like when we mentioned the progestogen pool, well, if you take oral progesterone, it only has a half-life of a couple hours, but because there's so many, uh, but they're not even active metabolites, they're just different progestogens that it's metabolized to, you're gonna have those downstream effects. Just like if you pour water into a pool, it cascades down a mountain, you're like, well, the first pool is empty. Why is there still water tripping to the waterfall at the bottom of the mountain? <laughs> it's because it has to go down through multiple pools that are exerting the same action. Oh, here was another fun headline. Uh, Dr. Burger King's Impossible Burger has 18 million times more estrogen than regular Whopper. Uh, the, the doctor in this case was a, a veterinarian, I believe, who had uh, some interest or, or some ties to the meat industry. I don't know the specifics there. Um, but basically, they were making a apples-to-apples -apples comparison between estrogen and soy isoflavonones saying a milligram per milligram these are the same it's got this many more uh, and this turned out to you know kind of be debunked people weren't going to be feminized from eating you know, impossible burgers uh, they're not particularly healthy even looking at the profiles side by side um, looking at like a glycemic response it seems to yeah. be worse but they do offer an option for taste for those who don't want to partake in meat so yeah. you think of it as not necessarily a health food, even it's, though they're marketed that way. Yeah, it's it's kind of a gimmick. It's a uh, taste something that kind of tastes like meat for no reason other than we're trying to replicate it as closely as possible. Um, darn the macronutrient profile and whatever else we put in it. We have a lot of vegetarians and vegans that listen to the podcast, and I've done other podcasts like Rich Roll before. And... Um, it, I guess the impossible burger in general, other than being a meme, is also a bit of a straw man argument to pick that as like the crown jewel of vegan cuisine. <laughs> yeah, I, I think serious like vegans who are interested in their health are probably not like consuming several impossible burgers per week or per day. Uh, I would think of if I was in this situation, I would sort of think of that as, OK, this is perhaps a like, you know, treat or something that is fun, but not necessarily contributing positively to my health. Yeah, the same way uh, carnivore dieters are probably not living primarily off hot dogs. And I try <laughs> containing uh, sauce of salami of, of yeah. various types. Yeah. So, yeah. I, so before we move on to phytoandrogens, I suppose we could take some time to speculate about soy formula, uh, which I hadn't really thought a lot about because I don't, you know, see infants or pediatrics in my practice. Mm -hmm. But when you're looking at the concentration and their ability to metabolize these things like genistein, for example, um, that ratio becomes skewed. And some data points to infants having you know, 20 times higher levels of genistein than even vegetarian adults would have. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe not our 60-year-old in the case study earlier, but yeah. You know, compared to the average vegetarian adult, they have much higher levels. And we know that this has an estrogenic activity. Um, looking at mini puberty that female infants and male infants go through, the female evidence have cure evidence of some increase or a lack of a decrease in uterine weight. Mm -hmm. And then also some reproductive tissue epithelialization. 
pointing to at least estrogenic activity in those tissues. I think they've looked at the testicular tissue in male infants and haven't seen like conclusive evidence of a toxicity there mm. or a reduction in the testosterone production. Um, but again, it, it's very limited. I think there's only a handful of studies that have even looked at this. Uh, about a decade ago, I think mm. that the whatever regulatory body is looking at this signed off and said that there was no concerns. Almost 10 to 20% of infants in the United States are fed soy-based formulas, and there is very high levels of soy phytoestrogens, of course, in soy-based formula. It should be relatively obvious. And as you mentioned, there is in vivo evidence in human infants that there's epithelialization of reproductive tract tissue, I believe, at least vaginal tissue, mm -hmm. and um, an increase in uterine weight. So if you're seeing those changes in secondary sexual characteristics, essentially, during the first three months of a female infant's life, um, I see that there is, uh, I, that is a reasonable step, regardless of statistical significance, to say there very well could be a clinically significant effect in male infants. And you brought up a good point. And um, although you don't, do not see pediatric patients, um, we talk about pediatric patients that I have. I've delivered a couple hundred babies and I care for um, infants and uh, I have a couple male children, children of my own, um, which we'll talk about on a different podcast perhaps. But um, it is reasonable to say, all right, your child is having um, you know, sensitive skin and it seems like, and maybe some colic, it seems like they're lactose intolerant. The first step that many clinicians go to is, we'll try a different formula, lactose-free. Let's put it on as an insensitivity. We don't have to add it as an allergy. And then you start a soy-based formula, which often has corn in it as well. Interesting. So I guess now moving on to phytoandrogens, uh, perhaps the most popular would be Tonkat Ali. Uh, xenoandrogen, these are present in some sunscreens, not any that I'm familiar with, but they have been labeled and shown to have some androgenic activity. Um, maybe these are used in some other countries, but I did go through my ingredients and see you know, am I getting extra androgen signaling from my sunscreen? And uh, it seemed more so that the chemical sunscreens in my house would have some potential estrogenic activity or CIRM-like activity. Uh, but Tonkat Ali, I think most people that listen to this podcast have heard of this by now. Um, it seems to have maybe a direct and also indirect uh, phytoandrogenic effect. I, I don't know if that's a term, but maybe we just coined it. Um, so how does it have these two direct and in one indirect effect? Yeah, so there's a couple different ways. Um, the no, there's an effect that is known on Leydig cells. That would be its indirect effect. And it does likely also work on the zona reticularis, which is, think of those as the Leydig cells of the adrenal gland, for lack of a better term. It's the androgen-producing cells in the adrenal. And um, it's ramping up the stroidogenesis cascade androgens tend to decrease SHBG. And um, Tonkat, especially at higher SHBGs, women tend to have a higher SHBGs. Mm -hmm. Tonkat certainly tends to decrease SHBG uh, if it is higher. If it's extremely low, it can actually increase SHBG, oddly enough. Um, so that's uh, kind of considered a, a direct effect. Yeah. So I think that's a good example. And, and this is one thing that does fall into the category of natural and safe. We talked a lot about 
even though the you know soy isoflavones are natural, they are not safe for every single population. But generally, mm -hmm. general population, normal levels of consumption, doesn't seem like they're causing any major issues. Tonkatoli, of course, you know, talk with your provider, your primary care physician, PA, NP, before starting supplementation. Talk about, hey, is this something that I need to take or not take? Um, something I guess we should mention is with these soy supplements that are often marketed for uh, menopausal symptom relief, they've mm -hmm. been shown where they can actually interfere in some of the chemotherapy used for breast cancer. Mm -hmm. So uh, women who have a risk of that or a history of that should be aware that they can actually make your aromatase inhibitors or serums potentially less effective, uh, not something you would want to you know, risk. So those are generally off limits. Yeah, even things like evening primrose oil, um, an estrogenic supplement are generally not recommended due to an in a significantly increased risk of adverse effects and compared to placebo, not relieving symptoms well. So you're much better off just talking to your healthcare provider and finding a better option. With the Tongcat, again, the, um, the quick way of assessing if you're a good candidate, lower insulin, lower IGF-1, lower DHEA sulfate, higher SHBG. Um, likely a better candidate. And if you don't have one of those things, then perhaps not. Yeah, not everybody is a responder. Uh, now we talk about phytoprogestins. Um, so apigenin, which we also mentioned earlier, is a phytoestrogen and seems to be also a phytoandrogen. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, and again, I, I think within the past month, I learned that there are multiple apigenins out there. Yep. So I was looking at this thinking, wow, this looks like a... Like, you know, we call things a, a dirty drug if it has a lot of mechanisms of action. I was thinking, wow, this is a dirty supplement, but perhaps yep. it's dirty supplements because we're not using a specific identical you know, molecule each time that someone is taking an apigenin. Yeah, apigenin, think of it as a backbone that's attached to a whole bunch of different things. So when you look up apigenin, you see this massive list of plants that contain apigenin, but it's in different forms depending on the plant that you get it. So if you get it from, I think mung bean extract is one of the places you can get it versus getting it from um, a wild green oat extract, it's going to be a different glycoside or different um, uh, additional molecule to the apigenin. So it's not just the apigenin in that case. So it's a complex of sorts. Yeah. So there was... And this was actually one where it was a miscited reference, two references actually. Yeah. So I was reading about this and I saw a line, and this is quote, a study found that apigenin reduces the risk of breast tumors in women exposed to prolonged treatment with medroxyprogesterone acetate. I thought, wow, this sounds too good to be true. I can't believe that they would have studied a supplement for long enough to see an effect size mm -hmm. in women with breast cancer. Yep. And I looked at the citations and it was in fact too good to be true. These were studies from rats and mice. So it's preclinical data, it's probably not harmful if someone has been on a synthetic progestin. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're kind of winning the tug of war at the breast with the apigenin instead of the medroxyprogesterone acetate, or at least nudging things in the right yeah. direction. But this is not as conclusive as this you know, study that cited this would have suggested. Yeah, it's amazing what gets through peer review. Um, academic journals, especially ones that don't have a rigorous peer review process. And it is hard to get people to peer review. I'm always trying to peer review, but sometimes it's just difficult to. It's time consuming and you don't get paid for it. Um, 
But yeah, it's basically just like a more boring version of a soap opera slash Instagram, YouTube, where different um, parties almost always with um, interests that are uh, opposite of each other are feuding very nicely with professional language. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Uh, perhaps if Twitter and LinkedIn had a baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's a lot of entertainment for us and uh, we do plan to, and we have been getting more and more involved in the academia, public, yeah, academia yeah. Um, publishing community. Yeah. For now, our, our largest channel of that is peer reviewing by coincidence and then sharing that data with you all. So now let's talk about some, this is probably the most unique endocrine disruptor, right? This is one that's used in cattle. Uh, so you think of the water runoff from cattle mm -hmm. farms and how that might be affecting the wildlife, especially aquatic species in those areas. Mm -hmm. um, what endocrine disruptor are we talking about? This is an androgen agonist, synthetic androgen agonist. A synthetic disruptor. Sounds like um, it's there's all these estrogenic endocrine disruptors. There's anti-androgens. There's progestins. Finally, we have an endocrine disruptor that actually binds and helps activate the androgen receptor. This sounds like this could be a good thing, actually, yeah. instead of a disruptor. This is a endocrine function promoter. Mm -hmm. It is a, it's a great thing. It, and in fact, <laughs> it is already in the water, especially in rural communities. If there's a lot of cattle, this has certainly been found in the water. This is a, a study mating behaviors in the guppies that are exposed to this. And I'll read some of the things and I'll, I guess you could decide if it's a positive or a negative in the guppies and see if that has any clinical significance and going over to humans, perhaps not. But uh, they looked at these male guppies. We know that male guppies prefer to mate with larger females. Females are more fecund. They have more babies. They wanna pass on their genes, natural selection, et cetera, et cetera. So the male gains lots of benefits by being choosy. Exposure to this endocrine disruptor significantly altered the amount of coercive uh, behavior. Um, both exposed and unexposed males demonstrated the same preference for the larger females. Um, and they both connected sneaking attempts or sneak mating with these females but exposed males carried out a much greater number of attempts of sneak mating. So it made them more sneaky, I suppose, which is probably not a positive thing. Is it thing. a positive character trait? Yeah, you'd think it would be the opposite, that you wouldn't have to sneak in and try for a quick mating if you were exposed to an androgen. However, they were not alpha guppies. They were not alpha guppies. Um, they were... Not sigma guppies. What's a beta guppy? What's the as in beta 17 guppies. beta alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, oddly enough, this was trenbolone that the guppies were exposed to. So because trenbolone has many other effects, and I think we've talked about 19 nors before. I don't think we've done our uh, androgen steroid family tree yet. Yeah, I certainly um, mentioned them in several podcasts, but yeah. not a specific podcast dedicated to them. Yeah, so this is, uh, I would consider it more of uh, an anabolic steroid that just happens to be uh, a SARM. An, yeah, an or an endocrine disruptor. Yeah, uh, all of the above, really. Um, but it's interesting that um, the scientific community is interested in uh, its actions on animals and potentially its action on humans as well. Um, 
the anecdotal evidence from humans taking trenbolone is great. Um, and uh, maybe we'll save more of that info for another day. Yeah. Well, now let's look at another species. So, you know, people are always talking about the risks of trenbolone. And here it is. Yeah. Tadpoles. Another species. So we found that, and this is tadpoles exposed to an environmentally realistic amount. So mm -hmm. in some cases, you know, mice are given unrealistic amounts. This is something that would never happen in nature or never happen in humans. Yep. And you can't really draw much from the conclusion. So both of these studies actually used what would be considered environmentally realistic amounts of the trenbolone. Mm -hmm. And the trenbolone altered the morphology, so the size of these uh, tadpoles. They were significantly longer and heavier than their non-trenbolone exposed counterparts. Hmm. Makes sense. That's not surprising. <laughs> it altered their baseline activity. They had significantly higher levels of baseline activity, uh, but they had lower levels of activity after a simulated predator strike. So hmm. I, I don't know a lot about tadpole psychology, so I'm not sure what to draw from that. Um, but they did not have any increase in anxiety-like behaviors. Hmm. So I, I think this proves that trend just would not possibly have any effects on mental health, uh, inducing any kind of anxiety or, or mania. Or insomnia. Uh, based on some tadpole data. I, yeah. I think, you know, Andrew Huberman talks about the, like, level of data people need to be convinced of something. You know, show me the data in mice. There's the five different Show me the data in vitro. <laughs> and then you have a sixth person who says... Show me the tadpole data. <laughs> yeah. Um, or perhaps what this proves is that, uh, as our uh, friend Alec McCarthy, PhD, says, something along the lines of 2% of preclinical or animal data is directly translatable into human data. So this probably goes in the 98%. I would agree. <laughs> well, this has been a, a fun podcast. Um, let us know if you have any thoughts or questions about phthalates, endocrine disruptors, phytoestrogens, androgens, progestins. Uh, we love talking about hormones and hopefully we've debunked the fact that phytoestrogens or phthalates are, you know, the sole cause of the reproductive crisis um, and also debunked the talking point that these are totally benign. They don't affect hormones. People that say that are just fear mongering. Uh, goes with our common theme of finding balance in all the subjects we approach, that there are certain people who will likely not be affected and certain people who could very well be affected by these chemicals. Yeah, hopefully um, that this helps you take away some uh, actionable items. Also, let us know your favorite endocrine disruptor, especially if we did not mention it in the comments below. We much appreciate the help for the algorithm or likes or reviews or whatnot, whatever we're supposed to say for our social media engagement. <laughs> As always, uh, thank you for your time listening and may God bless you with health and happiness.